0: me once more and let's ask the lord to bless his word father in heaven we thank you for the power of your word that at your word the logos the waves recognize the voice of their creator and are still and you can do the exact same thing to our hearts and so we thank you that your word is powerful it is alive it is active and by your spirit it is real for us today and so lord i pray that by your spirit And speaking through me, your servant, that the words would touch our hearts, that we would feel the conviction of of your word and your spirit, and that we would respond exactly as you would have each one of us. Lord, you know what each one of us needs here this morning, and so I ask you to do that work, to translate it to each one. According to your will, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A true story submitted to the Laugh section of the Reader's Digest goes like this. While filling up at a gas station, I accidentally spilled gasoline on my shirt. When I went inside to pay, I noticed a woman who was crinkling her nose at me. Embarrassed, I tried to put her mind at ease. If you smell gas, ma'am, I said, it's me. Now who here has ever said that? Anyone ever ever had to admit that before? Um, you've probably heard or used the term silent but deadly. Anyone ever used that one before? Or how about he who smelt it dealt it? Anyone? You've been guilty of of using that one before too. Now, of course, this is referencing smells that are bad, but not all smells are bad. In fact, some smells are fantastic. Take, for instance, there's the delicious smell of frying bacon, right? So who here... Okay. Okay. I should just ask, who doesn't like the smell of frying bacon? Is there anyone? Oh, one right here. Oh, we're going to have to talk to you after. The smell of frying bacon. Then, of course, on the negative side, there's the nauseating smell of Clarney Lake in August. (laughs) Has anyone else smelled that one before? There's that fresh smell of spring rain. You know, it's just, it's so awesome. And then there's that foul smell of a baby's dirty diaper. And I experience that quite frequently. Smells can be good, smells can be bad. So with that lead up this morning, I want to ask all of you a very important question. How do you smell today? All right, now who here is doing a quick pit check? You're Okay, don't do that, don't do that. Before you go there making sure you put on your Old Spice this morning or Lady Speed Stick or whatever it is, I'm just going to just go ahead and assume that right now you all smell fantastic. You all smell incredible. So, although I have to say hog farmers might be the exception, just saying, (laughs) I remember when I worked full-time in the hog barns, it could be so hard to get that lingering smell out of my hair. That was the worst. And even after I'd done the shampoo, rinse, repeat a couple of times, if my hair got wet again after, I'd still smell it just kind of lingering there. It was so hard to get rid of. But the bottom line in all of this is, we all want to smell good, right? No one wants to smell bad. No one wants to be the one that reason that people are crinkling their noses. We all want to smell good. In fact, Entire industries are based on this simple fact that we want to smell good. Perfume, colognes, deodorants, as well as breath fresheners, toothpaste, mouthwash, all these things are built on the single fact that we want to smell good. And the fact is that though you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't touch it, scent is powerful. The smell of things like crayons, Flowers, perfumes, fresh-cut hay, chocolate-chip cookies, all of these smells can evoke otherwise forgotten memories of the past. In fact, smell is the number one trigger of memories of all of our senses. We also come to associate certain smells with specific people. Now, I know what you're thinking about that. That can be good or bad, but it's true. We can associate certain smells with specific people. In fact, some celebrities have fragrances named after them. Fans can then identify with an actress or a singer by dabbing on the scent that bears his or her name. Along those lines, the Ladies Home Journal published a quiz to help readers determine the perfect fragrance for them. And the idea was that to be memorable, every woman should have a specific signature scent associated with her. Now, we're going to turn the corner. Signature scent. This is not a new idea. In fact, God introduced a signature scent as a part of worship way back in the time of Moses. In Exodus chapter 30 verses 34 to 37, we can read about how God instructed Moses to make a special blend of fragrant incense to be burned only in the tabernacle before the Lord's altar. The ingredients are even given. Now, the thing is, in this passage, the people were forbidden to use that specific ingredient of, of, of incense for anything other than worship. So this one blend of incense was only to be reserved for worship in the tabernacle, so that when people came to worship, they would smell this signature scent, and they would think about God and his holiness, because this scent was set apart for him and him alone. We can think of it as God's signature scent. This idea continues over into the New Covenant in the New Testament, but with a stunning difference. Instead of using a special incense to cause people to think of him, God now uses a different smell, a new aroma to cause people to think of him and turn to him. We find it in this morning's scripture reading in 2 Corinthians 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn there and we're going to read it one more time. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 14 to 16, the Apostle Paul is is writing about some of his missionary journeys and then just coming out of him is this exuberant expression of thanksgiving to God that packs in some powerful insights into the mysteries of God as it pertains to us. Now listen to this, beginning in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing to the one we are an aroma that brings death to the other an aroma that brings life now in that passage did you catch that who is now or what is now god's signature scent Who is it? Did you catch it? We are. It's no longer a blend of incense. It's a people that are now the aroma of Christ. It says we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. And now God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him to everyone everywhere. So this leads us to our first point for this morning. Point number one. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, you have have confessed your sins, you've believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, you have committed to him as the Lord of your life. If you are a Christian, and all of that means Christ is in you, and because Christ is in you, the aroma of Christ is now emanating from your life, and you are God's signature scent to the world. So point number one, you are God's signature sent to the world because your life is the aroma of Christ who is in you. So now, when we go out and we go through our lives and we go into our homes and we go into the mall and we go into our workplaces, when we go out, others smell the aroma of our lives and it's intended to remind them of Christ Jesus. Now, I confess in saying all of that, I find this a very humbling thought. It's humbling, because I have to ask myself, is my life giving off the aroma of Christ? When I walk through life, is my life smelling like Christ? And so I want each of us to ask ourselves that question today. How does my life smell? When other people smell me, do they smell Jesus? Or do I just plain old stink? What is, what, what is my life giving off? Not the physical scent, but the result of my life. What scent am I giving off? Am I giving off the aroma of Christ, or do I just plain old stink? Now, I want you to put that in your back pocket for a moment, and we're going to continue on in this passage. Now, we're going to just back up in the text just a bit to Paul's opening line in verse 14. He says, thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession so this is point number two we live as captives in christ's victory parade now what does this mean well at first glance being a captive in a parade doesn't sound like a good thing does it like being a captive is usually a bad thing no one wants to be taken prisoner no one wants to be a captive so what is he talking about here While Paul is drawing on a common experience that most of his first century readers would have understood quite well, he's using the phrase triumphal procession to draw upon the analogy of a victorious Roman general coming home from battle, leading his soldiers and their captives through the city streets. These ancient processions or parades were literally spectacular events, and they could last for days. But those victory parades weren't just for any ho-hum battle. In fact, in the Roman Empire, they had specific criteria that had to be met in order to qualify for such a victory parade. The first bare minimum criteria was that at least 5,000 of the enemy had to have been killed in a single battle. All right? So so start that. that there's your bar. That's the bottom end. In one single battle, you have to have killed at least 5,000 of the enemy. The second criteria was that the general in this battle must not have um, only defended Roman territory that they already had, just a defensive engagement, he had to have taken new ground. So think about this. It's not, a, it's not a passive thing that, oh, we defended ground we already held. Yeah, that's bare minimum. No, you had to have taken new ground, new territory for the glory of Rome. So you've got to have an epic battle, an epic victory, and taken new soil in order to have this incredible processional. So now, having done a little bit of research, some of you may have seen a processional similar to this in in movies you've seen before, but I want you to just imagine this for a moment because it's a powerful image that Paul is drawing upon here. So let your imagination run wild as I describe a Roman victory parade. I want you to picture yourself there. You're a citizen of Rome. You're pressed in among the crowds along the parade route, and it's buzzing with anticipation. You've arrived hours and hours early to get a good view and now the time has come. The anticipation is building to a climax and as you look around you can see that the main street of this magnificent city is lined with literally tens of thousands of people stacked up seven, eight, nine people deep all the way along the route from the city gate to the center of the city and the temple where sacrifices will be given. Then at long last It comes. The blast of trumpets and joyful shouts rise up as the parade has begun. At the head of the parade are a large number of trumpeters, blasting their trumpets jubilantly all the way down the parade route. They are then followed by the politicians, senators, and magistrates wearing full ceremonial regalia. Then, following them, is the spoils of war. They're carried on the backs of men or in large wagons. The parade at this point is moving slowly because the celebration is not meant to be rushed. It is meant to be savored and enjoyed every last minute of it. The wagons come by creaking under the weight of silver plates, cups and gold tables, lampstands that have been plundered from the temples and palaces of defeated enemies. Others are carrying carts of weapons and armor. Still others are filled with treasures such as sculptures, scrolls, and banners, Then a group of big burly men comes along, gold statues and idols on their backs. These are the local gods from the defeated country, held up as a symbol of their defeat, being lesser than their gods. A host of musicians accompany this part of the parade, playing local fight songs, stirring the crowds to more celebration. The spoils of war are then followed by the prisoners of war. Usually, the royal family, or conquered general, or other important prisoners are in this group. They come bound head to toe in shackles and chains to demonstrate their utter defeat and humiliation. Following them are the priests and their attendants, carrying censers of burning incense and leading white bulls that would be sacrificed at the temple. The burning incense is filling the area with its scents, and it's intended to saturate the area with the pungent aroma of victory. So to the victors, when they smelled the incense burning, it was the smell of triumph and supremacy over their enemies. But for the captives, that smell lingering in their nostrils as they marched along was the smell of death. For you see, the incense was also meant to remind the prisoners That when they arrived at the temple, the bulls were not the only thing that were going to be sacrificed. For often the prisoners were executed there as well. And the burning incense was used to cover the smell of their death. Then finally the victorious general himself appears. And you strain to get a good look. And finally there he is. The general standing tall and proud in a chariot of ebony and silver drawn by four great white stallions. He is clothed in a purple cloak, thrown over a white toga, sewn up with golden stars. In his right hand, he's holding a scepter crowned with an eagle, and in his left hand, a laurel branch, both symbols of victory and triumph. And then following him on his magnificent chariot are his legions, marching in procession behind him, chanting over and over again, triumph, triumph, triumph. And you and the crowd start joining right in, taken over by this spectacle. Triumph. Triumph. Now imagine for a moment what this would be like to be caught up in such euphoria. I know the Blue Bombers haven't won the Grey Cup in a little while, but let's just let our imaginations run wild and imagine that they were in the Grey Cup today, and they won, and there was a victory parade in downtown Winnipeg. And everyone's saying, finally, the drought is over. It's been three decades, almost, and we finally win a Grey Cup I know, this is crazy. You have to imagine these things, right? It's rough being a Bombers fan, but let's just imagine that this happened today and you were at the parade and everyone's pumped up and they're shouting, victory, we are triumphant, finally. That would pale in comparison to this spectacle as the people are caught up in the glory, the splendor of Rome, their, their majesty and power over everyone else. And yes, triumph, victory is ours. And everything you see in that parade, everything you hear, and yes, everything you smell, is designed to communicate victory, strength, glory, and yes, triumph. So let's return to our passage now, with that picture in our minds. Paul is describing a victory parade now that is no ordinary general being celebrated. For now, the one in the chariot is not a Roman general, He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Jesus Christ. And the conqueror is the one who left heaven on a mission to conquer death and Satan, to restore life to humankind. He was victorious in battle. He won the victory on the cross and over the grave. He rose again. And now he sits enthroned in power, awaiting the day he will return once more to establish His physical kingdom. But there is more. For in this victory processional, with Jesus exalted above everyone else, someone else is in that victory procession. We are. We are not spectators. We are in the parade. You and I are walking in Jesus' victory parade with King Jesus, and Paul describes us as his captives. Now, at first glance, as I said before, that sounds negative. I mean, weren't the captives usually executed? Well, yes. And that's the point. That's the point that Paul is making here. As Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So as captives in Christ's parade, yes, we have died with Christ But that is the only way that we can rise with Christ to new eternal life and to have his victory become our victory. And so rather than being taken captive by a tyrant, we have been freed from the tyranny of sin. And we, get this, have been taken captive by the love and grace of God through Jesus Christ. To be captive of Christ is not negative, my friends. It is the greatest place to be in the world. We are captives of Christ. We are captives of his grace and mercy and love. And it will captivate us for eternity. What a beautiful picture that Paul is drawing on here. So this is now our position. That we are captives of Christ and his grace. And so now that causes your life and mine to give off the aroma of Christ to everyone everywhere we go. And I don't want you to miss the key word that Paul uses, everywhere. This means that our lives are to be so saturated by Christ, so consumed by him, that we can't help but express the living Christ in our words and our actions everywhere we go. We don't even have to consciously be thinking about it because he's there. And so when we walk in our community, when we encounter a neighbor, the aroma of Christ just flows off from us. You don't have to consciously think about smelling. You don't have to consciously think about giving off a scent. It's just there regardless of what you do or think. It's just a part of who you are, and that's how it's supposed to be with Christ. When we eat at a restaurant, when we go to work, when we attend a school function, everywhere our feet touch the ground, the aroma of Christ flows from our lives. But now get this. The parade is a processional with people watching, listening, hearing, and yes, smelling. And the world is watching this victory parade go by, and it smells us and it takes notice. But now, listen to this. Not everyone enjoys the smell. This is point number three. We are now the aroma of both life and death. Verse 15 For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. Now, going back to the Roman processional, remember how the incense was burned alongside the cows and the prisoners. So for the victorious, that smell of incense was the aroma of victory. But for the defeated, the smell was the aroma of death. So you see, the exact same smell had two entirely different meanings depending on the person's position. So for those that we encounter who are already saved, or those who are seeking spiritually, we are the fragrance of life because we have Christ and his victory to offer them. And that smells good and it draws others in. They want more of it. But listen to this. Paul is saying that to those who are still captives to the tyrant of sin, those who are still living under the curse, when they smell the aroma of Christ in and through us, many will turn away in disgust, for we are to them the smell of spiritual death. There's an old Jewish rabbinical saying that states, as the bee reserves her honey for her owner and her sting for others, so the words of the Torah, the word, are an elixir of life for Israel, and a deadly poison to the nations of the world. So, to those who carry the aroma of Christ, we are both the honey and the sting to those in our community. To the one, it's life. To the other, it's death. And so, our lives are intended to polarize, my friends. We're not intended to just blend in and have no one notice us. We are to be like Christ, who polarizes people unlike anyone else, Everywhere Jesus went, people were polarized. They were either drawn to the beauty of him, his power, his words, his love, his majesty, or they were revolted by him. There was very few neutrals when it came to Jesus. And yes, we are to live at peace and all of that, but what I'm saying is we are to live our lives in such a way that people are either either drawn, attracted to the life of Christ that is in us, or they're revolted because they know that this is, this is something they don't have, and they're rejecting it. We can't just be neutral, floating through life, and be Christ's followers. Paul says it's not possible. If, if Christ is coming out of our lives, people are going to have one response or another. We are the aroma of life or death. And Our fourth point for this morning, we spread the aroma of Christ with humility, sincerity, and conviction to be in such a privileged position in Jesus parade knowing that his triumph is now our triumph his inheritance and in glory is now our inheritance and in glory to be in such a privileged position but then looking out at the lost and the confused and the sometimes sneering faces of people around us who don't yet know Jesus well it's human nature to easily become a little bit prideful a little bit feeling superior that I'm better than they are because I'm in the parade and they're not. And before you know it, when we foster that attitude, there can be a little bit of that holier-than-thou attitude creep into our bearing. It creeps into our lives. It creeps into our attitudes, our smell. And let me just put it to you bluntly. Holier-than-thou stinks. It stinks. It flat-out reeks in the nostrils of God. When we walk around with condescending, judgmental, superior attitudes against those around us who we deem ourselves as better than, it reeks. That's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus hated it. He flat out hated it. If we think that because of our position in Christ in the parade that we are somehow superior or better than or walk around with our noses in the air, my friends, we've understood it all wrong. We've got it wrong. There is nothing that makes me better than the person down the street who doesn't yet know Jesus. The only difference is I know Jesus and they don't. Jesus is the difference, not anything that I've done. He's the one who did everything. He's the one who drew me to himself. He's the one who even worked in my heart in such a way that I could say yes to him. That's the only difference. And so, yes, he's working out his grace through my life, but that's all his doing. It's his glory. It's his honor. It's not me being better than anyone else. And so for me to for one second be like, oh, I'm better than you. I need to give my head a shake. Because what happens is when we give off that smell, that stench, it actually masks the aroma of Christ in such a way that people can no longer smell Christ, they just smell you. And that's not going to draw anyone to Christ and his wonderful grace, the only thing that can save them. And so for this reason, after stating how we are now God's signature sent to the world, Paul says with great humility at the end of verse 16, And who is equal to such a task? Then verse 17, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. So what Paul is saying here is that just because we are in such an exalted and triumphant status in Christ, in his parade, our calling card should not be holier-than-thou attitudes and greed for personal profit. Our calling card should be living and speaking the word of God with humility, sincerity, and the conviction that we are men and women sent from God himself with a life-saving, eternity-altering message. And this leads us to our fifth and final point. We invite people to join Christ's victory parade with urgency. As we, captives of grace, in the parade of Christ, giving off the aroma of Christ, you can rest assured that it is causing people to smell, to wonder, to question, and for many, want to join. So, for this reason, we are told to always be ready to give an answer for those who ask for the hope that is in you, for the reason of the hope that is in you. We need to be ready. And hopefully they're not asking, why does your life stink, but why does it smell so good? And when they do, we need to be ready to invite them to join the parade with you. Invite them to taste and see that the Lord is good and experience him for themselves and and, and experience his goodness. And through the word of God, through worship and through Christian fellowship, they can experience these things for themselves. And perhaps there are some of you here this morning who recognize that you're still in a spectator position. You're not yet part of Christ's parade. And then I, I just encourage you. I welcome you. You can join the parade. Talk with myself. Talk with the friend who brought you here. Ask them how you can join Christ's victory parade because he wants to bring you in. That's the whole point of this. He did this for you. He wants everyone to be in his parade. He wants everyone to have life. And if you know that you have not yet received that, you can do that even today. And so for those of us who now are in the parade, while we always need to be ready and prepared to give an answer for those who are seeking and asking, we also need to recognize something very important. There are many people in this world who don't even know to seek, who don't even know to ask. And they need someone to seek them out and to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'll be the first to tell you, this is not always easy. In fact, most times it's not. In fact, I find it quite challenging. But here's what we've got to do. We've got to recognize that when someone's eternal position is hanging in the balance, whether with God in heaven or eternally separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell, and Jesus called it that, then it demands our courage, and it demands our urgency in taking the good news, according to a news report from just this past friday november twenty second on Channel News Asia. An American missionary was killed in a hail of arrows by an island tribe untouched by modern civilization John allen chow aged twenty seven was attacked last week as he illegally set foot on on the remote North Sentinel island in the Indian islands in the bay of bengal which is just straight east of india in the middle of the indian ocean now to protect their way of life the few photos that exist of this tribe of people shows them all but naked carrying spears bows and arrows and foreigners and indians are banned from going within 5 kilometers of this island the tribe is very hostile to outsiders having reportedly killed two fishermen whose boats drifted onto the island back in 2006, and then they fired arrows at a helicopter that was checking for damage after the 2004 tsunami. Indian authorities say that John Chow paid local fishermen to take him near the island so that he could paddle the rest of the way to the island alone. John had tried reaching them the day before, and he had paddled his kayak towards the shore, carrying with him fish and a football as gifts but the tribe's people fired arrows at him as he approached the shore, one of them piercing his Bible. He turned around, returned to the fisherman's boat, and spent the night writing and praying about his experiences and deciding, after such a reception, what should he do next? And he fixed his resolve to return to the island the next day, and he never returned. One source said he was attacked by arrows, but he continued walking forwards. He was calling out, My name is John. I love you, and Jesus loves you. Here is some fish. And the fisherman then saw the arrows, the arrows pierce him, him fall, and the tribal people tie a rope around his neck and drag his body up the beach. A statement by his family posted this past week on Instagram said, Words cannot express the sadness we have experienced about this report. He was a beloved son, brother, uncle, and best friend to us. To others, he was a Christian missionary. He loved God, life, helping those in need, and had nothing but love for the Sentinelese people. We forgive those responsible for his death. In a letter to his parents, John had written earlier, You guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worthwhile to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshipping in their own language. Now, whatever anyone wants to say about his risky methods, what's clear is that John Chow clearly understood the urgency of bringing the good news of Jesus to the Sentelese people, regardless of his personal risks. Why? Because he wants to see them with God in heaven around his throne. And you know what? I am praying that someday, because of his sacrifice, John will be able to welcome many of them into heaven. What about us? What are we willing to risk in order to bring the good news of Jesus to those who don't even know to ask for it? What are we willing to put on the line? And who are we going to be able to welcome into heaven because of our lives, because we faithfully carried the signature scent of Christ to everyone, everywhere we set foot. I pray that it will be many. Amen. Lord Jesus, we give you all glory, honor, and praise that you have counted us worthy. To be in your victory processional lord to be a captive of you is to be the most privileged position in the universe because we are captivated not by a tyrant not by someone bent on our destruction but we have been taken captive by grace we have received mercy when we deserve death you have given us everything and more Your word even tells us that the glorious inheritance reserved for you, Jesus, we have now been fostered into, and it is ours. That in heaven and in the kingdom to come, we will see and experience things that even this parade would pale in comparison to. And so, Lord, as we consider the kingdom to come and our place in it, I pray that we would not hold on to our lives and our temporary pleasures here so tightly that we would not be willing to risk them that we would not be willing to risk discomfort or, or even being ridiculed or rejected to bring the good news to others who don't yet believe, who don't yet even know in many cases. And so, Lord, I pray that this powerful testimony of John Chow would stay with us, that this young man was willing to risk his very life to bring the love of Jesus to people who didn't know about him yet. And I pray, Lord, that that sacrifice would not be in vain. And I pray for the Centilles people, Lord, that perhaps even now through this, you are stirring in their midst, that they are wondering, what would have motivated this man to come not once but twice? And he wasn't coming with weapons, he was coming with food. Why was he doing that? And I pray, Lord Jesus, that somehow you would bring the message of the gospel to them. And that through this, many would come to salvation. And now I pray, Lord, for our town, that as we go out from here today, That even as we smell the the subtle aroma of food coming up the stairs even right now, Father, I pray that our lives would be giving off the subtle aroma of Christ to everyone everywhere we set foot and that people would either be drawn or repelled, but that we couldn't be neutral because it is you in us, the hope of glory, and we carry you and your smell everywhere we go. And so help us in this, Lord. And I pray Lord for anyone here this morning if they've recognized that they're not in a position in your parade yet. They're still just a spectator, wondering what it's all about. I pray that they would just understand right now that you welcome them. That your grace, your love is for them and that you're ready to welcome them into your embrace and into your parade, into your victory. That sin can be done with, death can be defeated all through faith in you. And they can make that decision today. Give them the grace to do so. And now Father as we go We give our lives into your hands and we pray that you would multiply our witness many times over for your glory and the salvation of many. For I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.